Good morning. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you need something to like desperately change pretty quickly? Whether it's a, a situation at work where you feel like, I don't want to keep like dealing with this boss or dealing with this employee. I need either one of us needs to get transferred or something needs to change or a financial situation where it seems like it's getting worse and worse. Bills are piling up. Credit load is getting like a little scary and something's got to change or maybe it's some home or some living situation that seems really, really complicated and it just becomes like you, it's pretty volatile. You just don't know what, what you're going to deal with the next time you open the door or talk to the person and it, it like something's got to change. And then sometimes in life when you need those changes, sometimes things do change. And when those things change like that, and it's a pretty like stakes are high and things are pretty intense, we use words to contrast. Like you, you'll say it was like night and day, the difference between what it was and what it is now. Or you will say something like it is kind of a situation of life and death. And you, we use these to say it's like the greatest contrast. And kind of with that idea of life and death, I want us to, to kind of hold that close to our hearts as we read through this story again. We've been looking through the book of Acts. So if you're new to Ogletown today, we've been going through just looking at these kind of the first Christians after Jesus had ascended to heaven and how he is actually still at work through his apostles. And so here we actually have two of his apostles, first followers of Jesus, named Peter and John. And Peter and John are going to the temple. It's the hour of prayer, so they're going to pray. And they encounter somebody on the way. In verse 2, it says, this is a man who is lame from birth. And he was being carried. And this is like a daily ritual he has brought and laid there at the gate of the temple. Actually, it has a name, that gate. It's the beautiful gate. I want you to get an idea of what it looked like, the temple of that time period. So there's a, an artist's drawing of this, and I want you to see a contrast because I want you to see the bigness of the temple, and I want you to see like what must it have been like to have a very small layman. So if we could put that picture up of the temple. So this is about the time of Herod. This is a reconstruction, but it's a pretty good one if you if you look up, most will give you some picture like that. It's a massive facility. So such a contrast with this big, big facility and this one individual who is, had, had to be carried to the gate. And then it says this is all taking place at the beautiful gate, which 
you know, the beautiful gate, well, nothing about his picture and his life right then would be really called beautiful. If you've been passed by someone that's homeless or multiple people that are asking for something, asking for something, needing something of you, generally the first word in your mind is, isn't beautiful. So again, it's setting up a contrast, isn't it? It's setting up a contrast because when you go to the temple, you would go there to do spiritual things. You would go to pray. You would go there to sacrifice. You might even go to, to give something to God. But here's something very physical. Here's a very physical problem this man has. And it says in verse 3 that Peter and John, seeing, seeing Peter and John go into the temple, the lame man asked to receive some help, asked him for money. Peter directed his gaze at him. I want you to notice that in verse 4. Peter says he, he looked at him. He directed his gaze. So did John. And they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. He was expecting to receive something from them. Quick detour in this passage. Over and over again, the Bible shows us the heart of God for people with disabilities. Sometimes it's like it's not even the main point of the story, but... It's such an important part of the heart of God. We're close to the Lord when we're following Him in that care for people that are vulnerable, that need help. And I see this again and again and again. And it's not transactional. It's so personal. That's why Peter and John are looking at this individual. So this isn't like a drive-by and he just happens to be there. This is intensely personal for Peter and John. I think it's intensely personal for this lame man. What do you think, though? What do you think this man who was lame from birth, what do you think he would say his biggest need was? And I know we're just kind of guessing, but I think it'd be, we, we might throw out the guess of maybe he would say, I need some medical care to help me. In 2020, that's what I would think. But in this time period, that ship had sailed a long time ago. There was not going to be any more medical discovery or help that would really benefit this man. Maybe you would say he needs help to manage and deal with some of the disabilities, which would be true. And he actually did have that help, right? Someone carried him there. Someone brought him daily. So you kind of, you kind of boil it down to actually, it seems like a big need of his is, I mean, if we want to say it in crass terms, like pity money. If we want to use a nice Bible term, it'd be mercy. He just needs some help or he's not going to survive. He's got to have food to eat. He never would have thought, I'm positive, he never would have thought, you know what I need? I need help from a resurrected man that's not visible anymore. That's what I need. He would never think that. That would not have crossed his mind, even that day when he is laid beside this gate. And we have to remember that because we have our own problems, we have our own concerns, we have our own things that press and, and, and actually cause us to stress out a little bit. And one of the things we may be tempted to forget is actually we need Jesus as well. We need the help of a resurrected man who has ascended to heaven. We think actually what I need is a little help with just a little bit more finances. You know, if this side hustle will work out, it'll give me a little bit more that I can manage life with. Or what I need is 
I got to get some better grades and I, I actually need a job or a better job or what I actually need is a boost in my self-worth or what I need is to understand and process myself a little bit better or what I need is better friends or what I need is my family members to start acting a little differently. We could, we could do that all day long, but how often do we forget what we need is the work of Jesus Christ in the middle of our lives? The lame man would have thought that an encounter with Jesus, I don't think he ever would have thought that could change everything. That could mean the difference in everything. But that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says, Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up immediately. His feet, ankles were made strong. Leaping up, he stood, began to walk, entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him. The one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So we've read this story again, but let's just take inventory to what has happened. A miracle, a miracle has happened. A miracle has happened, and if you are in the small, small category of people that live on this planet that think the miraculous can never happen, supernatural can never happen, if, if I can't think of a rational explanation for it in this brain of mine, then I'm going to dismiss it as superstition. If you're in that category of people, you're going to have a hard time so many places with the Bible. But, but if you are open-minded, willing to believe that the creator of everything that is can and does interrupt creation, interrupt his creation, and does things that we cannot explain with our, our rational, like it says, that was different, that is not the way it normally works. Well, then you are going to be like the crowd, shocked and amazed. You are going to be, maybe even have some doubts lingering, but you're going to ask a different set of questions. You're going to recognize miracles are for a reason, and God uses miracles. God uses miracles to show his care and his protection of groups of people or individuals. We see this again and again in Scripture. God cares for people and he will do miracles to show his care and show his protection. God does miracles also to take what is in this broken world and give us a taste of what it looks like when it's restored. Some part of his creation, some part of nature, he restores it to its original intent often when he does miracles. This miracle, though, it did happen, but it happened because of Jesus. That's what Peter and John, in the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, it happens in his name because of the power of his name. So Jesus' name in that moment, we've got to be careful here, his name wasn't, wasn't just like a, a magical name, putting those letters together, kind of a lucky charm. that You say it enough and just some magical things will happen. It's not kind of functioning as a coupon code you insert at the end of a transaction that if you get the code just right, you get 30% off or free shipping or something like that. If you, if you get the name just right, then you kind of get a transaction with Jesus. No, no, I think we know most times names, especially in Scripture, but even in our day, we use a name to represent this is who this is. This is their character. This is, this is who they are as a person. Their identity. Why are we finding significance in this story? 
because it shows the identity of someone that is still working even though he's out of our visible sight. He's still at work. We're still seeing exactly who he is. We're talking about this miracle today because this wasn't just a random miracle worker doing a random miracle in Palestine 2,000 years ago. There's actually a larger picture in which this miracle sits. And I think we need to understand that because you can read lots of miracles in the Bible. And they might be interesting, it might be an amazing story, but I want you to kind of lift up a little bit because what Peter will do is say, this taste of a miracle that you have seen, it's part of something much, much larger that you need to know. Peter sets this miracle in a larger story where the fact that Jesus has arrived means death and life hang in the balance. Peter is going to set this miracle into that story. The arrival of Jesus, meaning life and death, are hung in the balance. Look at verse 11. So we go back to the lame man. While he clung to Peter and John, I should say even the, the formerly lame man, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. He said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? He had to smile after he said that, right? Why, why are you staring at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? And now we get kind of zoom out and we get the larger lens. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He has glorified his servant, Jesus. His servant whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. We all know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. There is so much going on as Peter begins to widen out the lens and we begin to see a bigger story. Names are brought up. Did you hear them? The name of Abraham and the name of Isaac and the name of Jacob. Before this story is over, the name of Samuel will be brought up as well as the name of Moses. As Peter begins to explain what just happened with the miracle, he'll start talking about things like the forefathers of the nation and prophets. And he'll talk about covenants and blessings. And when we hear all those names, and, and frankly, you might, be, you might be new to all these names because this is happening in a different world. You might hear like the, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, what does this have to do with them? What does that even have to do with me today? I want to give you some context because Peter is talking to people in first century Palestine with the Jewish heritage. He's, a, he's assuming they understand some of these cross-references and allusions he's making. He's talking about their history. He's talking about their sacred writings. We don't always appreciate, especially in the book of Acts, all that's going on there. And it's hard to appreciate because this happened in a very unfamiliar world. We don't have all the history and learning sometimes in place. You go, okay, what, what, what all is involved in that? 
But that doesn't mean you have to tap out, kind of throw in the towel and go, I don't understand any of this Bible stuff. Oh boy, when it starts throwing out all these names, like I just don't understand that story. You don't have to, you don't have to say the Bible isn't for me, I give up. I know that because a few months ago, I ended up going to the Avengers movie Endgame, right? So the only issue with that is that I had not seen one minute of any Marvel Universe movie ever made. I had been in an underground bunker for a couple decades, and they didn't let me out very much. And so I go with my son, and we are watching, and he's like on the way to the movie going, I think there's a couple things you need to know. And so there are all these stories and references and characters, and I mean, you're brought into this this movie, and I, I go, who knew that no human was worthy to have Thor's hammer? Who, who, who knew that? Who knew, like, it would be a gut punch to lose Iron Man? I mean, who, who knew all the, the emotions would run so high? I didn't know, because I had not seen one second of a movie. And here we're watching this whole thing resolve, and because I, I do have a brain, I could process, okay, there's a big story. I think I'm seeing it resolve. I think I understand there's got to be a backstory with that character and that character and that one and that one and that one. And that. You know, I'm, I'm doing all the processing in that moment. But just because I'd never seen, never seen one moment of that, it definitely limited my full appreciation. But I could understand there's some characters going on and their, their story is part of a bigger story. I, I promise you, if you're not used to the Bible, I would imagine a lot of that could feel that way. You're kind of brand new, thrown into all these characters, and, and even this chapter. Actually, the rest of the book of Acts is going to talk about this story. But don't let a little ignorance trip you up. I say that. Let's, let's keep walking and learning. I say that because what we read in Acts is not a fictional universe. I think it's worth it. I think you owe it to yourself to understand what didn't take place in studios, but actually what God has been working out over the course of time. So when Peter sets this miracle in a story that's not fiction, but the most real thing you will ever know, and says, like, listen to the illusions, try to understand, try to process them, and see that the arrival of Jesus in this story means death and life now are going to be in his hands. That's why it's so significant to me when, when Peter is saying, Jesus was put on trial and you had the opportunity to say he can go free, but you asked for a murderer. You asked for someone, get this, who kills people. This was the author of life and you chose someone very, very different. You chose a murderer. And notice kind of this death to life theme. You killed the author of life. God raised him from the dead. God brought the one you killed back to life. The rest of the chapter, this miracle story, is just going to unfold this death and life theme. And you owe, your, you owe it to yourself to gain some appreciation of it, even if you don't grasp all of it. Because this whole death to life theme is just embedded in the story of humans. You know that right the idea of death is never that far from our attention, never that far from the Bible's teaching. So you go all the way back to Genesis 2, and God tells Adam and Eve, 
going to put a tree in the Garden of Eden and you will not eat of it. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So right there, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, we have the story of death. And then Romans 6.23 unpacks that some more. The wages or the, the payment of sin is death. James 1 is going to say it like this. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. This is the big story where, where, that humans are living in. Sin runs so deep, it causes death. And even when, get this, even when the author of life finally shows up in the flesh to rescue, to redeem, you trade his life for a murderer. What an indictment. And I, I want to say like, well, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. But actually, my sin is involved in all this. I am complicit. I, I don't get a, a free pass and say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Because Scripture says in Adam, our first parent, in Adam, death passed to all of us. Romans 5 says, for all have sinned. Ephesians 2 says, because of that, we are spiritually dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. And because of that, we all have an individual appointment with death. This is part of the bigger story, right? It is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the, the judgment. We stand before God, and if God doesn't intervene on our behalf, we face Him spiritually dead. That's the default setting. That's the story of the universe. The default setting is one of being spiritually dead. You have to appreciate this big picture, and we do appreciate it, especially when we taste some of the loss and separation that death brings. Nothing gets right at my heart quite like losing someone that I care deeply about. Nothing touches it quite like that does. And Peter looks at the man after working this miracle and starts talking about death and life, and he brings Jesus right into the middle of the discussion. Jesus showed up to do something about this life and death struggle. You killed him, but you need to understand who his identity really, what, what he is really all about. So there are so many titles, and they come at you so quickly. So I just kind of want to highlight them in, in bullet point. You certainly can read this in context. But, but Peter says, Jesus is the one. You want to know who he was and why he has, like, why he hinges between life and death? It's because he is God's servant. And again, that pulls way back to uh, terminology used by Isaiah 700 years ago in Isaiah 53, that Jesus would, there was a servant coming, and he would change everything. He, and this servant now, is raised from the dead. But Jesus is not only the servant, and the references there are in 13 and 26, that's in Acts chapter 3, but he's also the prophet. That's language from a thousand years before Jesus showed up. A thousand plus. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Moses said, there's coming a prophet, and if you don't listen to him, you'll be destroyed. Talk about life and death hanging on. He has such authority that if you don't listen to this prophet who has 100% authority to speak for God, if you don't respond to his words, it, it means life and death is in the balance. Jesus is God's servant. He's the prophet. He's also the holy one in verse 14. He's also the righteous one in verse 14. Look for the one who's like set apart for God and by God to do the right things for God's people. This is language from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. 
Jesus is also the Christ. It says it in verse 18 and verse 20. He's the one sent by God. And the people of Israel, they had been living, talk about their story, they had been living like, we want the Christ, we want the Messiah to come. We want the one sent from God. And Peter's saying, he has arrived. The one who fills everything and sets in motion a new beginning for the people of God. Maybe the umbrella title for all this is Jesus is the author of life. The author of life. John 1 says, in him was life and his life was the light of men. Peter sets this miracle in the story of death. The arrival of Jesus means something. And not just the arrival of Jesus, but again and again in the book of Acts, it's that God raised Jesus from the dead. So Jesus tasted death. He experienced death, but he defeated death. I don't know how many gravesides, how many funerals I do a year, but it, the truth that Jesus conquered death always means something to me at that place. When I think of the, the people that I love who are gone, who my physical presence, we're separated now by death. It stings and it hurts, but what can make me emotional even just a moment ago was singing that our Lord has risen and defeated this thing called death and, and has, has ended its rule and reign over people. And now, because He has risen, there's hope that we will rise and there's a, a future, there's a new beginning. This means so much to me when I hear of diagnosis, of you hear like the word terminal, the word no one wants to hear. And you realize, wait a minute, we are talking about the author of life here. So even the worst diagnosis for the person in Christ has to reckon with the author of life. When I hear of percentages of being able to get through or timelines of days or weeks or months, I remember he's the author of life right at the harsh reality. There's something that death can never take away. And that is the life that Jesus gives. So when we, we say that word, and I've said it a lot, life, life, life that Jesus gives, taking death and bringing it to life, what does that even look like? And again, I want to go back to this passage because we get glimpses of what life, like what is, what is Peter talking about? What has is, what is Jesus come to restore when, it, when we're talking about life? Well, for one lame man, one day in Jerusalem, I do know he got a glimpse and he got a taste of this abundant, massive life. And it was the power to walk and leap and praise God. Verse 16 says he got perfect health. But you and I both know there were lots of, lots of disabled people in Jerusalem that day. What does the promise of life mean to them? So we know this man got perfect health, but is that the only way we could talk about life? Surely, surely not. Surely life goes deeper than just this earthly body. And I love how this passage fills this out. Stay with me. Life not only includes kind of perfect health, which we look for with new heavens, new earth, a glorified body, but it also means sins are blotted out. That's the hope. Jesus comes. And if you, if you are in Jesus, the words that you've dread the most, guilty, condemned, ought to be ashamed. You actually hear different words. No condemnation. Accepted. Pardoned. Not guilty. You don't talk about life. Those are such words of life. 
all the shame, all the regrets, that changes because of Jesus. Sins are blotted out. Verse 20 defines life in not just terms of sins being blotted out, but times of refreshing. We sang about, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, because we experience weariness and we need a redeemer and we need a rock to help us. This is times of refreshing that come straight from God's presence. It's a closeness with Jesus. It almost kind of recreates the scene in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve could walk with God in the cool of the day and think, my goodness, that's the world I want my kids to grow up in. No terror, no fear. But for that to happen, Jesus has to be fully in charge. And this is the promise. The time when Jesus comes, it's life and death here. What once was death, now he has, he has started something that will result in beautiful, abundant life. Verse 21 says, not just times of refreshing, but a time for restoring all things. This world is remade. New heavens, new earth, everything that's been lost in this world is restored, remade. That's part of a covenant, a binding agreement that God has made with us. And he's faithful to keep his covenants. Verse 25 and verse 26 talk about a time of blessing. I mean, do you just see how all this is packed on? This is, you want to talk about what life is. A time of blessing for all the families of the earth started in Abraham and God said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing in all families of the earth. Abraham are going to be blessed because of you. Part of life is also a turning from wickedness. That's what verse 26 says. That word turning comes up a few times in the book of Acts, like headed a whole different direction. Headed one way, now you're headed another way. Jesus was sent to turn us from everything that would harm us. To turn us, to transfer us from the kingdom, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of light with his beloved son. That's exactly what God was doing in Jesus. So you put all this together. God raised up his servant. He sent him to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. We're talking about passing from death to life only because of Jesus. So here's where we are today. Here's where we are today. What Peter said to the crowd that day still applies to us. He said there, there previously were times of ignorance where you didn't quite know exactly what God was doing. And Peter says to the crowd in Jerusalem, that time is over. Now is not a time of ignorance. So no one there, no one in this room is going to cobble together an argument of ignorance. We just didn't know. We didn't know. Those times are over. But we know now that passing from death to life comes through turning to Jesus. Passing from death to life comes through faith. Not just generic faith. Not just faith is important to me. Not just kind of like all religions are kind of the same kind of faith, but faith particularly in the name of Jesus. And we know that passing from death to life comes through faith and kind of two sides of that coin, through faith and through turning to Jesus, Scripture calls this repentance. What I love about verse 26 of this chapter is it says that God is doing the turning. He'll turn us. God goes first. 
God initiates a work on us while we are still in our sin. God opens our eyes to see who He is. God opens our eyes to see where our sin and where our flesh is taking us. God goes first. God softens us to His will. God opens our ears to hear what He's saying. God calls us to take steps to follow Him. And we love because He loves first. This is where Scripture goes. I, I, so I can imagine, I can imagine the lame man at the gate, beautiful. I can imagine when he got up that day, he had no, no idea he'd had that personal encounter. Not just with Peter and John, but with Jesus himself. I am guessing that the amazed crowd did not wake up thinking, I bet we're going to see something fantastic today. They're just in Jerusalem. And it could very well be that you might not have expected God to really get a hold of your attention, your heart. You may not even be able to give words to what's happening. But there's something in you compelling you that this is true. These words are true. This is hope. This is life. Something telling you right now, if I continue on my path, I am surely headed to physical death, maybe Maybe spiritual death? Could that be the case? Maybe God in his kindness has you here listening to words of life and you say, I did not expect, but Curtis, I think God is speaking to me. So what do you do? You respond. You pray. You reach out to him. You talk to him. Could, could you talk to someone? Maybe the person that brought you. Maybe there are people in, and you know this, if you come regularly, there are people that would be available to talk to you afterwards, men and women. The pastors would love to have a conversation with you about this passing from death to life. But some of you may just, you may not need to do that because you've already, you've already trusted in the Lord. What you need to hear is you can rest in this one. Like maybe what you don't need to hear is, here's one more thing to do. Maybe you need to hear, here's what's done. Here is what has been done for you. And you need to walk out those doors resting in that in a way maybe you haven't in a long time. Maybe there's some other way God wants to reorder and rearrange some things in your life. Maybe that's exciting and maybe it's scary. But what is the Lord saying to you? So we have this one man that God did a massive work in his life, but just as personal as it was for him, it might be for you today. I want to give us some space to think about it. Can we just have some time? Let's bow our head and close our eyes. Let's ask the Lord to point out what he's been bringing to our attention and maybe what our next steps need to be, all right? Father, I thank you for the reminder that your son tasted every dark, difficult element of death and then defeated it. And I thank you for this new era that he has brought in that is all about life. 
And I pray for those that maybe need to rest in that truth. I pray that they would do so, their soul would rest, even if their calendars are all turned up and their schedule is crazy and their circumstances are beyond what they can process right now. Cause them to rest in your authority, your power. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear. We wouldn't be stubborn. We wouldn't be rebellious. We wouldn't be apathetic. We wouldn't try to claim ignorance, but we would say, Lord, we've heard. And enable us to respond. What we say, Lord, is that we need you. We need you. So hear our cry even as we sing those words this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.